Welcome to Asbury United Methodist Church. My name is Pastor Will. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as special devotionals and interviews. We hope these messages inspire hope and bring support as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions, or if you want further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking our website at asburymaitland.org. Well, I want to begin my sermon this morning with a pretty simple question. Has anybody here ever suffered from disappointment? What kind of question is that, right? I think it was uh, Benjamin Franklin who famously quipped that there are two things in life we can expect with certainty. What are they? Death and taxes. But I don't think Benjamin Franklin would disagree if we added disappointment to that list. Disappointments are inevitable. Amen? They're hard to avoid. Disappointments are as much of a part of life as breathing. A child wakes up on Christmas morning. Remember those days? Waking up as a kid on Christmas morning. And this child sees all these presents, dozens of presents under the tree. Now this child has been hoping for a basketball. He's been praying for a basketball. He's told his parents that he wants a basketball. He's told Santa Claus that he wants a basketball. Well, lo and behold, on Christmas morning, there is a sphere-shaped object under the tree with wrapping paper on it. And so the child, with great excitement, grabs the object, begins to unwrap it, and what does he find? Not a basketball. Yes, somebody had the answer. A globe. That's just cruel, isn't it? Obviously, that child is going to be disappointed. Other times, however, our disappointments are a lot more serious than that. A couple looks forward to retirement after working for a number of decades, and they have all these grand dreams of doing the things that they weren't able to do when they were working, like traveling the world. They also think about growing old together, seeing their grandkids grow up, but then suddenly, about a week before retirement, the husband drops dead of a heart attack, leaving the wife with shattered dreams. And I share that because that actually happened to a woman that I knew in a congregation that I served. About a week before she and her husband were to retire, he died unexpectedly. Disappointments come in different shapes, different sizes, but they all share one thing in common. Here's what all disappointments have in common. Our experience of life is different than what we had hoped or expected. Our experience of life is different than what we had hoped or expected. So we have our hopes and our expectations on the one hand, and then we have reality on the other. And when our hopes and expectations don't mesh with reality, when our hopes and expectations don't line up with reality, we are bound to experience feelings of disappointment. And this is also true when it comes to our relationship with God. For so many of us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we choose to be followers of Jesus who walk in the way that leads to life, we have all these romantic expectations of how God's going to act. We think to ourselves, well, God's going to answer my prayers exactly as I pray them. Or God's going to protect me from all accidents, all hardships, all trials. Or God's going to make it possible for me to know that God is there every moment of every hour of every day. And then when God doesn't seem to deliver on these expectations, 
we experience feelings of disappointment. And not just generic disappointment, but disappointment with God in particular. I am fully convinced that disappointment with God is the most painful kind of disappointment that there is. Because disappointment with God sinks in and affects the deepest level of who we are, our soul. Disappointment with God can leave our soul feeling bitter, resentful, frustrated, wondering if God is there. And if God is there, why doesn't God love me? Why doesn't God care about me? Why doesn't God do something to address my disappointments? Uh, Because disappointment with God is such a common human experience, I thought it would be helpful for us as a congregation to look at this topic for just a few weeks. And so beginning this morning, uh, we are starting this new message series simply entitled Disappointment with God. And this series is based on a book of the same name by Philip Yancey. Has anybody here ever heard of Philip Yancey before? Uh, Some of you have probably read his books. He's a great writer. I recommend his books to you. Uh, Lives out in Colorado. Well, the subtitle of this book is Three Questions That No One Asks Aloud. Three Questions That No One Asks Aloud. According to Philip Yancey, all of our disappointments with God boil down to three questions. Three questions that most of us are too afraid to ask. Because at best, they seem impolite, and at worst, they seem downright offensive. And yet, these are the questions that we're wrestling with. Uh, We saw these questions in the bumper video, but I want to share them once more up here on the screen. Number one, is God hidden? Number two, is God silent? And then number three, is God unfair? Is God hidden? Is God silent? And is God unfair? So we're going to tackle each one of these questions over the next three weeks, and this morning, We're going to begin with that first question, is God hidden? And instead of responding with a simple answer like yes or no, uh, let's explore the complexity of this question. If God wants a relationship with human beings so much, we say this often as a church, we read about this in the Bible, God wants a relationship with us. Well, if God wants a relationship with us so much, why isn't God more obvious to us? And if God is so heartbroken by those of us on the planet who choose not to believe in God because we don't feel there's enough evidence, well, why doesn't God just rip open the heavens, reveal himself to all of us, declare that he's there? That would silence all the doubters and skeptics, wouldn't it? All the atheists, all the agnostics, that would settle the debate about God's existence once and for all. God is omnipotent. God breathed this universe into existence, the Bible says. So God is certainly capable of doing this if he wants to. So why doesn't God do this? Why does God seem so content when it comes to concealing himself or hiding away? You ever wondered this before? What's interesting is this is not a new or modern question. People in the Bible thousands of years ago posed this question. Uh, Listen with me to what the psalmist writes here. Uh, This is Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. O Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide when I'm in trouble? Has anybody here ever heard the name Bertrand Russell? Uh, Maybe if you took a philosophy class in high school or college, you came across that name. 
Uh, Bertrand Russell was a famous British philosopher, uh, lived about 100 years ago uh, in the 1900s. And at one point, uh, in 1927, uh, he wrote a book entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. Do you know what the book is about? Well, the title gives it away. He gives all the different reasons, all the various reasons as to why he is not a Christ follower. Well, somebody once asked Bertrand Russell what he would say to God if he found out upon death that he was wrong and that there really is a God. Russell thought about that, and then he said that he would say these words to God upon death. You, sir, gave us insufficient evidence. So presumably, that's what Bertrand Russell said to Almighty God upon death. You, sir, gave us insufficient evidence. So for Bertrand Russell, if there, is, if there is a God, this God has deliberately hidden himself or concealed himself in such a way that it is hard for us to know for sure if he's there or not. And just to make this even more complicated for us, is that if we go to certain parts of the Bible, we find God doing just the opposite, don't we? In certain parts of the Bible, we find God revealing himself to human beings in these really overwhelming, over-the-top ways. Let me just offer a few examples. In the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God's people, the Israelites, they're enslaved in Egypt. They're suffering under the yoke of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is oppressing them, giving them building projects, while Moses has run away from Egypt because he had killed an Egyptian officer. He's hiding away in Midian, tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. Well, then suddenly, God appears to Moses in a burning bush. The bush is on fire. It's not consumed by the fire. And then from the burning bush, God speaks to Moses in an audible way. He says, Moses, Moses, get your tail to Egypt. This is my paraphrase. Get your tail to Egypt. The original Hebrew isn't exactly like that. I want you to tell Pharaoh the king to let my people go. Well, eventually Moses goes to Egypt. He tells Pharaoh, let the people of God go. Pharaoh is stubborn, doesn't want to do it. And so what God does next, he sends plagues upon the people of Egypt. Do you remember how many plagues God sent? Ten plagues altogether. In one of these plagues, God turns the waters of the Nile River into blood. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? That's pretty unusual. Well, eventually Pharaoh lets the people of God go. And so the people of Israel begin the process of leaving Egypt, going into the promised land. Well, Pharaoh changes his mind at the last minute. He comes after them with all of his armies. I mean, how can they stand up against the armies of Pharaoh, who at this time was the most powerful person in the whole world? And here the Israelites are. They're at the edge of the Red Sea. They literally have nowhere to go. And Pharaoh's going to take them back into slavery. Well, suddenly what God does through Moses, Moses raises his staff after praying, and God parts the waters of the sea down the middle. This is one of the most famous stories of the entire Bible. He parts the waters of the sea, allowing the Israelites to walk safely across on dry ground. We have this giant wall of water. Who knows how high it was? But this wall of water on either side. And then when the Israelites reach the other side, God closes the waters in on the Egyptians, destroying them. That stuff doesn't happen in the everyday world, does it? Has anybody ever seen something like that happen before? One more example. In the book of 1 Kings, we read about the prophet Elijah. Elijah is probably Israel's most famous prophet. 
And Elijah is in a showdown with the prophets of Baal. Baal is a false god. The Israelites have begun to worship Baal instead of worshiping the God of Israel. And Elijah can't take it anymore. And so he says, okay, we're going to prove once and for all who is God. So he has the people take some bulls, they slaughter the bulls, <clears throat> and then they take the meat from the bulls and they put it on the altar. And Elijah says, whichever God sets fire to the altar, that God is the true God. If Baal does it, Baal is God. And if the God of Israel does it, then he's God. And the prophets of Baal say, all right, let's do it. And so they go first. Elijah's polite. He allows them to go first. And so they begin that process of calling on Baal, but as you can imagine, nothing happens. They call on Baal for hours and hours and hours and hours, and Elijah has some fun. He begins to mock them. Come on, where is Baal? Is he asleep? Is he engaged in some kind of activity? Well, finally, it's Elijah's turn. And just to ensure integrity to this miracle, Elijah has water poured up and down the altar. Not once, not twice, three times making the altar impossible to catch fire. And then Elijah does his thing, calls on the name of God, and within a moment, the altar is ablaze. These are just a handful of examples, but it seems as if there have been times in human history, according to Scripture, where God has revealed himself, showed up in some really dramatic, over-the-top, overwhelming ways. And so the question is, why doesn't God do this anymore? Why doesn't God do this today? Why doesn't God reveal himself as he did on occasion in the Bible? This is not an easy question. It's one that I personally wrestled with. But I think part of the answer here is found in the stories themselves. It's amazing what happens when we slow down and we look at Scripture carefully. Oftentimes the answer is right there. Think about this with me. Okay, so Moses and the burning bush... God speaks to Moses in an audible way. We would assume that would foster obedience and trust on the part of Moses. That would be a safe assumption, right? That God is actually speaking to you. Does that foster obedience or trust on the part of Moses? No, because Moses begins to argue with God. You have no idea what you're doing. You have no idea what you're talking about. I'm not equipped. I'm incapable. I, I, I have a stutter. I can't speak properly. You have to send somebody else until finally God allows Aaron, his brother, to go with him. Or what about the Israelites who saw all those plagues, who saw the waters of the Nile River turn into blood, or who crossed the Red Sea on dry ground? I mean, surely they had really big faith in God, right? Not really. They go into the desert, and they begin to complain to Moses. Come on, what's going on here? Life was so much better in slavery. Life was so much better in Egypt. We have nothing to eat here. And so God provides manna bread from heaven. It just appears on the ground. That's not good enough. So God gives them meat. He gives them quail. That's not good enough. And then when Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, what do the Israelites do? They get impatient and frustrated. And they say to Aaron, his brother, hey, we have no idea what happened to Moses. We don't know if he's ever going to come back. Build us an idol. So he crafted the golden calf. And when Moses got down from the mountain, he found the people of God worshiping the golden calf instead of worshiping God. These are the same Israelites, the same Israelites who saw the plagues, who walked on dry ground through the sea. Or what about the Israelites who saw the altar set ablaze through the prophet Elijah? 
Well, just like the Israelites who crossed the sea, they too worship God for a short time, but even they venture back into idolatry. Reflecting on these stories, uh, this is what Philip Yancey says in his book, uh, Disappointment with God. He says, the Israelites give ample proof, not just some proof, but ample proof that signs may only addict us to signs, not to God. We would assume that these big dramatic signs would addict us to God. That's not the case. Now, some of us might push back and say, well, that was the Israelites. They didn't know any better. If it were me, I would be different. We sure about that? Frederick Buechner, who's another great spiritual writer, he says this, the Israelites of the Bible are just like everybody else, only more so. Can somebody say I'm an Israelite? There's no enthusiasm with that, is there? We're all Israelites. The Israelites of the Bible are just like everybody else, only more so. Had we been in their position we would have done the exact same thing. But let's be clear about something else. It's not as if God has pulled back entirely because the truth of the matter is God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself to us. Uh, in Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul, he says that creation itself, this universe that we love in, this, this world that we inhabit, uh, the fact that there is something instead of nothing, that creation tells us that there is a God. Creation points to God's existence. But beyond creation, God has revealed himself to human beings in the most decisive way that we could imagine. That revelation happened 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we believe that in Jesus, Almighty God, God who spoke galaxies into being, Almighty God put on flesh, he put on skin, he walked our ground, he breathed our air, he became incarnate among us. But here's the deal. Even that revelation, the revelation of God in Jesus, was overlooked by most people. It reminds me of what happened back in 2007. So this would have been 15 years ago. In January of 2007, and maybe some of you remember reading this story, uh, there was a man who emerged in a metro station in Washington, D.C. Now, by most standards, he was pretty nondescript. Average built, late 30s. He was wearing jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt. He had a baseball cap on. Well, he positioned himself next to a wall beside a trash can, and then he pulled out a violin. And for the next 45 minutes, he played some of the finest selections of classical music known to human beings. Pieces by Mozart, Bach, folks like that, while almost 1,100 people rushed by. But the thing is, hardly anybody paid attention. Which is interesting, because had they paid attention, they might have recognized him for the world-renowned violinist that he is, Joshua Bell. Anybody ever heard of Joshua Bell, the violinist, before? And they also might have recognized that the violin that he was playing wasn't just an ordinary violin. It was a rare Stradivarius that was worth over $3 million. Evidently, the whole thing was part of a social experiment, and we have a picture of this. It was part of a social experiment put together by the Washington Post. The Washington Post wanted to know if in an ordinary 
unoppressive setting, everyday setting, that people would stop to notice beauty in something extraordinary? And apparently the answer is no. Because even though three days earlier, Joshua Bell's performance had sold out Boston Symphony Hall with ordinary tickets going for $100 a person, there in the metro station with those 1,100 people streaming by, he only made about $32 from the people who stopped long enough to listen and give a donation. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? That's not far off from what happened from when God came among us in Jesus Christ. This is how John, my favorite gospel writer, puts it in the opening of his gospel. This is John 1, verses 10 and 11. He, that would be God in Jesus, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, the Israelites, the Jewish people, and even they rejected him. So here in Jesus Christ, we have the most decisive revelation of God that ever took place in human history, as Paul would say in Colossians 1.19, in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And yet even so, most people missed it. But why do they miss it? Well, maybe because like you and me, they were expecting God to act in a bigger, more dramatic way when that wasn't God's intent. You see, God's intent, more than anything else in this universe, I'm convinced, is to have a relationship with us. That's the whole reason God made us, created us, put us together, breathed life into us. But here's the question we have to wrestle with. How can a genuine relationship happen between Almighty God and human beings like ourselves if God does not restrain himself or hide himself to a degree so as to create the need for faith? How can a genuine relationship happen between Almighty God and human beings like ourselves if God does not restrain himself or hide himself to a degree so as to create the need for faith? This is God we're talking about. And let's state the obvious, God and human beings are not the same. We are not equals. God is immortal, we're mortal. God is infinite, we're finite. God is the creator, we're part of the creation. Can we really have a genuine relationship with God if God does not restrain himself or hide away to some degree? The answer is no. Um, Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Danish theologian, this is how he put it in a story that he told. I want to share this with you. He said, suppose there was a king. So can we all imagine this? Suppose there was a king. A king like no other king. Everyone trembled before this king's power. No one dared to breathe a word against this king, for this king had the strength to crush all his opponents. Yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared to resist the king. But would she really love him? She would say she loved him, of course. But would she truly? Would she be happy at his side? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she left behind? How could he know? 
if he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she a humble maiden and to let shared love cross the gulf between them. For it is only in love, Kierkegaard says, it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced that he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. Does this sound familiar to anybody? This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, right before our eyes with the story. He clothed himself as a beggar and approached her cottage incognito. It was no mere disguise, but a new identity that he took on. He renounced the throne, the king did, to win her hand. What Kierkegaard is telling us through the story, this parable, is that's what God did when God came among us in Jesus 2,000 years ago. Yes, there have been times in history where God has overwhelmed human beings with his presence, when God has acted in these really dramatic, obvious ways, but that never seemed to foster real faith, real trust, real obedience, a real relationship. But then when God came among us in Jesus, God radically changed things. God got down to our level. God drew as close as God could possibly get, but even that revelation was not enough to convince everybody of his existence. Because God's intent, listen to this, God's intent is not to convince us of his existence. God's intent is not to convince us of his existence. God's intent is to have a relationship with us because we genuinely and authentically want that relationship. So going back to the question, is God hidden? To a degree, yes. But God is also as visible as we are open to recognizing. I love how God himself puts it to the people of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so what we need is not some big, dramatic, over-the-top revelation. What we need is to be open to the revelations that have already happened. Most especially the revelation of God's Son, Jesus, through whom we can have a relationship with God, not based on fear, not based on coercion, but on mutual love. The only kind of love there is. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.